one of the things you learn as you become a parent and your children get older and start hanging out with other children is that kids are like giant petri dishes that carry disease from one place to another, little incubators. I discovered this last year when I was sick for a really long period of time. I started freaking out. I was like, do I have cancer or something? What is going on here? So I went to the doctors, following my pride, at which point he asked me uh, that very pointed question, do you have children? And, and then I said yes, and he smiled and informed me that that was my problem. That's a diagnosis I can agree with. My point here, though, is uh, if you've had kids, you know that sometimes they bring diseases into your home, and what happens is that sickness spreads from one child to the next child to the next child, and uh, if you're like me, it spreads to you, and you keep it the whole time that each child has the, the disease. You're sick with all of them. A similar thing is happening in the book of Malachi. A sickness has infected the people of God. It's infected the priests, and it has been transferred to the people. It's not a physical sickness, but a spiritual one. The sacrifices of the people have revealed that they have sick hearts. People have sick hearts and they offer God sick sacrifices. This is something we're going to examine today as we look at the second disputation in Malachi. Uh, if you remember, there are six disputations, or I like to call them conversations, uh, in Malachi, and they're all kind of set up the same way. God is going to make a claim. The people are then going to say, really, are you sure? And then God is going to prove his claim. And our section of Scripture today will follow that same pattern. Uh, Malachi, once more, is a minor prophet, not because he is of minor importance, but because his book is shorter than books like Isaiah or Ezekiel, major prophets. All that in mind, what I hope for us to see today in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9, in this second conversation, is that worship shows what you think about God. That's the main idea, that your worship shows what you think about God. And then I want to exhort us to honor the King, to honor God with our worship. We'll work through the text and the outline provided for you. Before we do that, let's pray. God, we are an imperfect people, imperfect ears. We listen imperfectly. I am an imperfect preacher with imperfect words. I, I preach imperfectly but you are a perfect God. And you have spoken to us in your perfect word. And you have given to us your perfect spirit. And so I pray by that spirit, you would help us to hear, to understand, to believe, and to be changed by your words this morning. Give us a great clarity amidst our confusion this morning, about what it is you would have to say to us. Speak, God. This we pray 
In Jesus' name, amen. So God opens this conversation in verse 6, saying these words, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Now, now you have to understand, at this point in the conversation, somebody that's listening to this is going, yeah, that sounds good. A son does honor his father, and a servant should honor his master. You know, fathers are kind of nudging their children, making sure they're listening. And yes, we're on board, Malachi. But then there's a quick pivot mid-sentence. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of armies, to you priests who despise my name? God is claiming that he has been dishonored, despised, and insulted by those that he has appointed to be priests in his temple. Those who are to bridge the gap between God's people and God himself. He makes this claim that he's been despised, that he's been dishonored, and he is met with the disputation or the question of the people. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? And people are like, we don't really know how we've despised you, God. If you remember, this is post-Babylonian exile. It's about a hundred-ish years after that. And so they've come in, the temple has been rebuilt. Malachi's kind of a contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah. And the temple's been rebuilt and they have all these promises that are yet to be fulfilled. The nations are supposed to stream to Israel. Israel is supposed to be, become this great state. God's glory is supposed to be seen throughout the whole world. And here they are, this little kind of itty-bitty insignificant vassal of the Persians. Remember, they're asking that question, God, do you really love us if you haven't fulfilled your promises in the first five verses? And God says, no, I love you. I've chosen you, and I'm going to love you despite yourselves. Despite the curse you deserve, I'm going to continue loving you. And now he's saying, my love's not the problem. Your love is. You despise me. And the people can't even see how they're despising him because they're going, look, we were supposed to rebuild the temple. We've done it. We're offering sacrifices in the temple. That's going pretty well. Like, God, we're doing all the things you told us to do. Isn't, isn't that enough? I mean, geez, what do you mean we've despised you? We're following the rules. To understand how the people have despised God alongside the priest, I want us to look at the role of the priest, their job description. And to do that, instead of giving us kind of a, a brief account of the history of the priesthood, as thrilling as that would be, I want to just look at verses 5 through 7 in chapter 2, which is part of the same section, where God says what the priests are supposed to be. Speaking of his covenant with Levi, he says, My covenant with him, that's Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence. And he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, 
and people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. So here, here's brief job description for a priest. To guard the right instruction of the Lord, to teach rightly about who God is to a people that would desire that teaching, and to walk with God. This idea of walking with God is something that shows a, a great degree of intimacy and familiarity. Uh, I think immediately of Enoch, who walked with God. If you remember in Genesis, there's that um, just terrible kind of genealogy after Adam dies, and you have uh, this guy lived and he died, this guy lived and he died, this guy lived and he died. And it comes to Enoch, and it says, Enoch walked with God, and then he was not. Now, what's that mean? Enoch walked with God and then he was not. And you're like, well, I guess Enoch didn't die. But then it, the, the genealogy picks back up. This guy walked with, or didn't walk with God, but this guy lived and he died. And the, the idea is that what distinguishes Enoch is that he walked with God in intimacy and familiarity. He, he loved God. He knew God. Similar thing happens in Noah's life as he's building that ark for years and years and people are laughing at him, saying, this is kind of ridiculous. You're building a giant boat because it's going to rain and the whole world's going to flood. Okay, guy. But Noah is described as walking with God. He's, he's faithful. He's in relationship with Him. And these priests start to do a similar thing. They are to be faithful to God's Word. They are to faithfully teach about God's character. They are to walk with God. They are to be faithful in both their teaching and their living. But look at what has happened in verse 8, how they have violated God's covenant, how they have violated their job description. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. They're not turning many from iniquity, verse 6. They are turning many from the way, verse 8. They are not walking with God. They are walking according to what is right in their own eyes. How? How? And verse 7 gives us the answer. How have we despised your name? We say walking according to what is right in their own eyes and Verse 7, by presenting defiled, polluted food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor, asks the Lord of armies? And now, plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Asks the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product as food is contemptible. You also say, what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. 
You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering? Am I to accept that from your hands? Asks the Lord. And so the sick hearts of the people are showing up in the sick sacrifices that they are offering. So the sacrifice is supposed to represent the people. And in representing the people, it's supposed to communicate about God's holiness and their sinfulness, their need. And the priest's job in all of this, the sacrificial system, is described for us in Leviticus 22. Uh, Let me read to you verse 17 through 20. The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to Aaron, his sons, and all the Israelites, and tell them, Any man of the house of Israel or of the resident aliens in Israel who presents his offering, whether they present payment of vows or freewill gifts to the Lord as burnt offerings, here's the important part, must offer an unblemished male from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order for you to be accepted. You are not to present anything that has defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. What's going on here is the priests are responsible for inspecting the sacrifice that comes into the temple. The sacrifice is to be holy or blemishless because it represents God's holiness and the people's need for a holy and perfect sacrifice in order to atone for their sins and make them right with God. And so what's happened in Israel is they've rebuilt the temple, they've started offering sacrifices, but God's promises haven't come to fruition in quite the way they had expected. And so the priests and the people have kind of a handshake, wink-wink deal going on here. What's happening is the priests are accepting lame, sick, and stolen sacrifices when they should be requiring unblemished sacrifices. Do you see the problem? Because your worship communicates what you think about God. And, and what the people are communicating they think about God when they offer him inferior sacrifices rather than blemishless sacrifices is that God's not really that important. His requirements aren't, aren't really worth keeping. The priests say, you know, we'll just... We'll just do this our way rather than God's way. The, the, the temple parking lot's full. It doesn't seem like it's a big problem. I mean, people have come back to the temple. What's the big deal? The big deal is that God is insulted. God is insulted when we step away from his word, stop walking with him, and turn to start walking in our own way. He's offended when you try to worship him, not by doing what is right in his eyes, but by doing what is right in your eyes. When you do that, you are communicating that you do not think God is great, but that you are great, and that he should accept worship that you deem fit. Above the Lord, you are dishonoring him as a child who shouts no and stamps his foot at his daddy. The Lord is disgusted with the people. 
think we have a couple um, quick things we can learn from this. We, we cannot abandon God's word. I mean, there, there are things in God's word that are going to rub you like, like it's going to feel like sandpaper on your skin. And you feel like, it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to believe that. But you must, because that's what God has said is true. To, to, to just believe what you want to about God and to twist the scriptures so that it, it fits your personal preferences, like, that's just to create a God in your own image and to worship an idol rather than the God who is. To, to twist the words of scripture so that it's more palatable for your friends and family or those who do not believe, well, that's to walk in the footsteps of Satan, not in the footsteps of God. We must cling to God's word. We must also learn to evaluate success, not on the basis of worldly things. I think sometimes our churches, we look around, and if the parking lot of the church is full, everybody goes, hey, they must be doing something right there, right? Full church, full pews. It must be going real well. God must, he's really blessing what's going on there. Not necessarily. A crowd gathered around truths that are unbiblical, that are offensive to God, is not alive as a church is. They are dead as the world. Success. Additionally, we need to be careful about who we entrust ourselves to as teachers, who we choose to lead us. There are many who preach false gospels. We were promised of this in 2 Peter chapter 2. We read, There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. God will not allow his name to be blasphemed forever. He will not allow his holy reputation to be insulted in perpetuity. He will bring recompense. He will bring judgment, especially on those who teach falsely. So yes, uh, your leaders in Christian service, your pastors, if you remember here, me, you need to hold them to a high accountability. You need to make sure they are being faithful to the Word of God and teaching you faithful things and not leading you into the way of destruction, not causing you to follow them down a path that they have forged themselves. We want to make sure that our leaders are walking on the path of righteousness, the way laid out for us in Holy Scripture. The second we abandon God's word for our own preferences is the second that we cease to be Christian. It's the second that we return to our idolatry. 
It's the second we choose death rather than life. We need to be wise about who our leaders are. The leaders are not the only ones who are guilty of this dishonoring of God. Look with me at verse 8. God says to Israel the, sarcastically, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased or show you favor? Asks the Lord of armies. I love this. You wouldn't give it to a human governor, but you'll give me this inferior gift. Like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm greater than that governor. And think of it this way. Uh, have you ever been on your way to someone else's house around Christmas time and gotten that phone call from a family member? Say, Uncle Joe is actually going to make it tonight. And all of a sudden, you, you, know, you get off and you go, oh no, I have got to get a gift for Uncle Joe. We're only like 10 minutes out though. So what's between here and the house? Oh, there's a gas station. I mean, sheets. They've got good stuff. Find like a keychain or something like lame on an infomercial, like one of those. I saw a protector for a banana the other day. It's like a plastic case you put a banana in. I'm like, this is a great gift. Uncle Joe will love this. I think he likes bananas. Like, it's a gift that's really a non gift, a gift that's given out of obligation, not really with the person to whom you're giving the gift in view. I have a similar thing God picks up on in, in verse 13. It says, you also say, look, what a nuisance or inconvenience. You scorn the gift. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. This is a, a gift that's not a gift. It's, it's insulting. <laughs> I thought of this this morning, and I don't, it might not be a good illustration, but we'll try it. Uh, it it's kind of like a, a, a young gentleman who decides he's going to pursue a girl, and he says, I, I think I love you, and I want to appreciate you. I want to show you how much I care for you, and so I want you, I'm going to take you out. Put on your best dress, your best shoes. We're going to go out Friday night. And Friday night rolls around, and picks the young lady up, and they pull into the Waffle House. Like she is... He says, this is how much I respect and love you, Waffle House. Now, my wife probably to some of you later is going to argue that our first date was at the Waffle House. Don't listen to her, all right? Lies. Is insulting. They're saying, the, the sacrifices are supposed to say, God, look how holy we know you are. Look how much we love you. We've taken from the best of our flocks, the best of our stuff, and we're giving it to you because you are worthy. That's what it's supposed to be, but instead they're offering him the Waffle House. Oh, it's around here. Hey, that one's sick. It'll taste the same, so it's fired up on the altar. And the priests are probably, I don't know why they're accepting these offerings. I imagine there's some bribery going on probably lining their pockets. That's speculative, though. They're certainly not obeying God. They're offering God the least, and 
your, your worship shows what you think about God. And they're offering God the least thing possible. They show two things. That their hearts are sick, not truly devoted to God. And that they do not value God. So here's the question for you. What does your worship reveal about how you think about God? What would an objective evaluation of your spiritual life reveal? That you think God is great or that you think you are great? What would it reveal as... your family, your comfort, college football, or would it come back, God is what is most important. Do you come to church, you wake up inconvenienced, hit the, the snooze button on the alarm, I go, what a nuisance. I got to go to church today. It's December. It's getting close to Christmas. I got to put in my, my Christmas month, and then, oh man, I'm going to have to do it again in Easter month. Get my time in there. What a nuisance. Do you come in here and daydream the whole time? What an insult to God. What you're communicating to God in that is that you are not worthy of my full attention. You are not worthy of my Sunday mornings for an hour, let alone worthy of my whole life. Worship shows what you think about God. And God does not accept half-hearted and despicable worship. Look at verse 10. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not... God says shut the whole thing down and go home if you're going to worship me in this way. I'm not going to be disrespected. I think we get a really great picture of verse 10. I don't think it's meant to be prophetic, but, but it's kind of fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Uh, the priesthood recovers briefly in Ezra and Nehemiah, but, but in the New Testament we come and we, we have a priesthood filled with hypocrisy once more. Pharisees are hypocrites, and, and what's happened is Jesus goes into that temple courtyard, and what they're doing is, well, we're not, we're not giving blind or sick animals anymore. But what we're doing is we're selling blemishless animals at a profit. And so the outer courtyard, the only place where the Gentiles can go to meet with God, has become kind of a bazaar, a place where money is exchanged and the temple is turning a profit. And Jesus sees this and he gets angry. He says, no, 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 no. We will not accept this worship. It's insulting. And he turns over tables. And he gets a cord, a whip. And he drives the money changers out of the court. Shuts the whole temple operation down for the day. Because offerings given to God that are half-hearted. That are driven by obligation. 
rather than affection. Of honor. Not only will God not accept these offerings, He will curse the one who tries to deceive Him through them. Verse 14. The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. He says, look, don't, don't lie to me and make a vow. Say, God, if you do this, then I'm going to offer you, you know, this, and then give me something else. It's despicable. It's deceptive. And it will not bring you blessing. It will bring you curse instead. We also see that the priests will be cursed. Look with me in chapter 2. Therefore, this decree is for you priests. If you do not listen, and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you, and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. Look, I'm going to rebuke your descendants and I will spread animal waste over your faces, the waste from your festival sacrifices. So in turn, I have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in your instruction. Two aspects to this curse. Well, three really. He's going to curse their blessings and the first way he's going to curse their blessings is he's going to rebuke their descendants or curse their families. That means is that hard times are going to come on the priest's families as a consequence of their sins. Friends, your sin always affects others. And it especially affects those closest to you. Innocent people get hurt when you sin against God. The second part of the curse is animal waste spread on the faces of these priests from the festival sacrifices. Animal waste is dung. Uh, I just wish sometimes our translations would be just really blunt with us. Like, it's poop. They're taking the, the, the poop and the entrails from the inside of animals. This is a picture. And God is smearing it on their faces. And not just a little bit of it. That's what this note about the festival is about. He's saying, I'm taking the waste. waste that would be, and I'm smearing it on your faces. That's the image. God's saying, I am going to humiliate you. You are worthy of being despised. You have insulted me, and you have brought curse upon yourself. How dare you insult me? My name is great among the nations. I am a great king, and you have spit in my face. And so I will rub your face 
in the waste of your worthless sacrifices. The priests will experience hardship and humility. This curse gives description to the curse that's due the priests, assuredly. But it also gives description, in part, to the type of curse we deserve for rebelling against God in precisely the same way as the priests and the people. Many of us have come to church half-hearted. All of us have sinned. All of us in our lives have gone our way rather than God's way. Have honored ourselves as kings and queens rather than God alone as the king of the universe. Daily, we make much of ourselves and little of God as we choose the lesser things of the world rather than holiness. This is a curse and a hardship and a humiliation that should be ours. This is a curse that fell who was our perfect high priest. See this this note here says end of verse three. And you will be taken away with it. Where they will be taken to is outside of the camp where the waste is burned in a trash heap. And this is is precisely what happens to Christ. He is despised and shamed, covered not with animal waste, but with spit the taste of his own blood mingled with his sweat. He's humiliated with slappings and beatings and jeerings and a crown of thorns upon his brow. He is utterly shamed and disgraced as he hangs naked on a cross with a sign above his head that says, King of the Jews. And people shout at him, Hail the King! Indeed, he is mocked and disgraced and humiliated and he is killed outside of the camp. Hebrews 13, starting in verse 10. And the, the verse I really want your ear to perk up for, I'll point it out to you, is verse 12. We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Verse 12. Therefore, Jesus suffered outside the gate. Jesus was taken away to the place reserved for the burning of animal waste to a place of curse, verse 12b, so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us, therefore, go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. 
For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share. For God is pleased with such sacrifices. Friends, Jesus is crucified outside of God's presence, outside of the temple, outside of the city, in the place of cursing, so that we can be brought into God's city, the place of blessing. Jesus is not a main... perfectly about God's wonderful holiness, our desperate need, our complete sinfulness, and God's extravagant grace. God's extravagant grace. The cross is proof of God's words In Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you. How how have you loved us? The cross. And I will not put up with half-hearted sacrifice. I will not be disrespected by your lack of love. No. Because Christ has been crucified outside the camp, we ought to offer sacrifices of praise continually. We ought to do good. Because our Savior is not a defiled sacrifice, but a blemishless sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy. You are also to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges, notice this, impartially, when the priests were judging partially, it's part of the curse. The Father who judges impartially, according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence. Give awe to the God who is worthy of awe, fear. We are to revere Him during your time living as strangers, that's during our time here on earth, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Let me read that for you again. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, which is like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you, 
Through Him you believed in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. How do we honor God rightly? By living holy lives and offering to Him the sacrifice of praise. By standing in awe of Him. By treating Him in the way He deserves to be treated. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations. How has his name become great among the nations? Through the work of Jesus Christ who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. There's a wonderful truth in all of this. You know, you be holy as you are holy, God. I can't, I can't do that. I'm going to fail. Amen. We are all, all messy, messy sinners. The good news is that the priests in the temple, when the people would come with right hearts, they didn't inspect the worshiper. They inspected the sacrifice to make sure it was blemishless. And it was the blemishlessness of the sacrifice that made the person right with God. Friends, the good news is that the same is true today. You come to God, and He doesn't inspect every aspect of your life. He knows you're a sinner. No, He inspects the sacrifice. He looks at Christ and says, blemishless, holy, perfect, good. And he looks back at you. Praise God that we don't have corrupt priests, but that we have Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7, which we read earlier, verse 26. This is the kind of priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. Amen. Christ has offered himself for all of us. So let us not offer him half-hearted worship. Let us not disrespect him with feelings of just being annoyed when we gather together, being inconvenienced when we are doing good. Let's not do him the dishonor of obligatory, begrudging, careless obedience. But let's give him the honor of affectionate obedience of the loving obedience that is due His name. Indeed, His name is the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Let us confess it once more again this morning that Jesus is great. That He was dead 
but that He is risen and that those who have faith in Him will rise just as He is. Let's pray. God, thank You for loving broken people like us. We do not deserve your love. There is nothing in us that was lovely that would cause you to look down on us and smile. But you chose to wrap us up in your steadfast love from before the time we were wrapped up in our mother's womb. You chose to bless us and you give us life before there was time. There is nothing we have that we have not received. We have nothing to boast in. We are vile and we deserve all the curses imaginable. We, we deserve hell. We deserve to be separated from you. But in your kindness, you have loved us. And we praise you. Amen.